Okay. Uh, welcome, everybody. Uh, my name's uh, Richard Dennis. Uh, I'm, I'm the director of the Australia Institute. Uh, uh, but you'd be amazed to think the front page of the Australian might have said something a bit misleading the other day. It said, it said the mining boom. The mining boom is a fantastic, uh, fantastic thing in Australia. And, and quote, every Australian... It was talking about the impact on GDP of the mining boom, and it said every Australian is $8,000 a year better off. <laughs> it didn't say the average Australian, which would have been wrong for other reasons, and I thought, that's interesting. I wonder how the unemployed who live on $14,000 a year, I mean, I wonder where their cheque for $8,000 came from. And that's one of the problems, of course, with the way we talk about economic growth and the way we measure economic growth. We can say bizarre things with a straight face, like every Australian is $8,000 a year better off, when it's demonstrably untrue. And, of course, again, with the way we measure GDP, the fact that most of the profit, 83%, in fact, of the profit associated with the mining boom in Australia uh, goes to the foreign owners of our mining companies... The fact that that 83% goes offshore, every cent of it counts in our GDP, even though it winds up in someone else's pocket. So we have, to, as a society, unfortunately, we have almost no forums to talk about uh, the way we measure economic growth, let alone talk about uh, what we could do instead of it and uh, what the inevitable consequences of it are, especially when linked to the other, uh, the other topic of tonight's talk, and that is, of course the scarcity of the fossil fuels which we're so merrily extracting. So um, uh, without any further ado, let me introduce Richard Heinberg to you. Uh, he's a senior fellow of the Post Carbon Institute, the author of 10 books, of course including the one he's talking about tonight, The End of Growth. Richard is widely regarded as one of the world's most... This is the other Richard, not me. Uh, is <laughs> widely regarded as one of the world's most effective communicators of the urgent need to transition away from fossil fuels and he exposes the tenuousness of our current way of life and offers a vision for a sustainable future. Richard's well known as a leading educator on peak oil um, and his expertise ranges from uh, the critical issues including the current economic crisis, food and agriculture, community resilience and climate change and uh, I think he's uh, a dab hand at permaculture, I hear, as well. So uh, tonight his talk is entitled uh, The End of Growth, Peak Oil and the Economy of the Future. Uh, and, uh, but again, before, I really must thank uh, Jenny Goldie again and Sustainable Population, um, who've sponsored his trip to Australia, and their ACT partners. Richard's on a, on a national tour. This is the ACT leg. So we've got the National Society Forum here tonight, ACT Peak Oil, uh, Sea Change, and, and of course the Australia Institute. We're all very, uh, very uh, pleased to be a part of tonight. Uh, proud to look up and see a packed house, and keen to welcome Richard Heinberg. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for coming out tonight again, and thanks to the organisers. Um, tonight we are going to be talking about economic growth. And growth is something we typically measure by GDP, gross domestic product, which is the total amount of, amount of money spent in an economy. Uh, most economists will tell you that 
economic growth is always good. It's been going on for a very long time, and we can anticipate it going on more or less indefinitely into the future. Uh, tonight, I'm going to challenge uh, each of those assumptions, and I think we should start with the past, the idea that economic growth has been going on for a very long time. Well, it hasn't, actually. Uh, if you look back at even the past few centuries, we see that uh, there wasn't much GDP per capita, and it wasn't changing very much. Empires were rising and falling, and yet it's really just the last couple of hundred years, and really the last hundred years, and especially since World War II up to you know the 70s and 80s, that we saw really substantial global economic growth. And of course, it's still occurring, uh, especially in countries like China and until recently India, but no, it's not something that's been going on forever and ever. Now, this, this last couple of centuries is, a, is an unusual time in human history. It's also a time of very rapid population growth from under one billion human beings at the beginning of the industrial period to over seven billion of us today. Now, that's an extraordinary rate of growth. Uh, it's extreme biological success, I suppose you could say, if, if you want to look at it that way. But uh, then it's, it's also a kind of perilous success if you look at it in a slightly different way. A third factor that makes the last couple of hundred years uh, unusual in world history is our rate of energy consumption. It's gone off the charts. And I would suggest that there's a clear correlation between these three factors and that energy production and consumption has been uh, pivotal. I'll get back to that in just a moment and explain why I think that's true. But first, I want to pay homage to uh, what brought me here in the first place, and that's a book that was published in 1972 called Limits to Growth. It went on to become the best-selling environmental book of all time, I read it when I was 21 years old, and it changed my life. It, it was my wake-up call, personally. For the first time, I was aware that our human world is on an unsustainable path. And so for my entire adult life, I've been trying the best I can to understand why that's the case and what we can do about it. Now, the Limits to Growth study was, of course, undertaken by... Uh, a team of scientists at MIT in the US. It was the first attempt to use computers to model the interaction between population growth, resource depletion, environmental pollution, and so on. Uh, of course, the computers available at that time were very primitive by modern standards, so was the software, and, and the data was not as robust as, as we have today. Uh, but they came up with a set of scenarios for, for how these, these factors might interact and, and unfold over time. And the standard run scenario showed a peak and decline in world industrial output sometime in the first half of the 21st century. Now this, of course, was a, 
an outcome that was not very welcome to most mainstream economists, and so the limits to growth study was lambasted by, by uh, uh, really uh, what amounted by what amounted to a PR campaign on the part of, of uh, conventional economists. Uh, I won't go too much in detail about that, except just to say that the CSIRO did a. Uh, a retrospective study back in 2008 looking at the standard run scenario and comparing it to 30 years of data, and this was their conclusion. Uh, essentially that we're right on track. We're doing a good job. Now, <clears throat> I, I want to uh, tonight talk about how this, this dynamic that the limits to growth um, team studied how that's unfolding in real time around us. And I want to try to relate it specifically to the situation in Australia. So let's, let's dig in. We're going to be talking about three important factors, one of which the limits to growth study didn't look at at all, which is debt, and two others which the study looked at kind of obliquely, energy and climate. But it seems to me that these, these are the baskets of factors that are, in fact, converging to bring economic growth to an end in real time as we speak. So energy. Energy is everything. Without energy, literally nothing happens. It's easy to overlook the, the role of energy in the economy because the way we often think about it is to just to look at how much we spend on energy as a fraction of total GDP. But that really is misleading because if you take away energy, the GDP doesn't just contract by that percentage, the GDP disappears. You know, if, if suddenly there were no petrol at the pumps, if suddenly the lights went out and didn't come back on, what do you think would happen to the economy? It would go away. So energy is central to all economic activity. Up until the last couple of hundred years, the energy that we used was from renewable sources. It was almost entirely from the sun. But something changed with the Industrial Revolution, which I, I think we should really think of as the fossil fuel revolution. We developed the tools, you know, the gears, the metallurgy, the simple heat engine, so that we could access and use fuels that had been created by nature over tens of millions of years, concentrated fuels, energy-dense fuels, that we didn't have to put any effort whatsoever into creating, only into digging up out of the ground. Uh, think of it this way. Maybe you've had the experience of running out of petrol in your car and having to push your car a couple of meters off to the side of the road. It's a lot of work, isn't it? Especially if it's a heavy car. Well, think about having to push your car for kilometer after kilometer. That would really be a lot of work, wouldn't it? Well, if you, if you do the math, it turns out that a, a single liter of fuel is doing the work for us that's equivalent to maybe six weeks of hard human labor. 
Now you can't get labor anywhere as cheap as the petrol we buy. What are, what, what's Australia paying for petrol right now? A buck, buck 50 a liter? Could you get, let's say, even a month's worth of hard labor anywhere on the planet for $1.50? Obviously no. So that is really what has given us so much economic benefit over the last couple of hundred years. We've mechanized every process of production and transport that we possibly could. When we talk about labor productivity, it's in most instances, it's not about people working longer hours or working harder or having better educations. It's mostly about people using more fuel-fed machines to do more work. But oil, which is the most important of the fossil fuels because it's, it represents virtually all transport energy, oil is, of course, finite in quantity. We discovered that in my country, the United States, uh, over the course of the 20th century. We started out as the world's petroleum powerhouse. It's where the oil industry started in, in the early 20th century. We were not just the world's foremost oil producing nation, we were by far the world's foremost oil exporting nation. This is how the United States got rich. Of course, we used a lot of that oil domestically, and this is key for how we got rich, because we invented whole industries to use it, the automobile industry and the aircraft industry. Okay, so around 1930, the rate of discovery of new oil fields started to taper off in the United States. And 40 years later, in 1970, the rate of extraction of oil started to taper off and has been generally doing so ever since. Some years we have better luck. Right now, the US is having a, a spate of good luck in extracting unconventional oil. But that's, that's another story. We'll get back to that. The same basic process is going on in country after country. Countries that used to be oil exporting countries are now becoming oil importing countries. Indonesia, Great Britain. Now, of course, everybody can't be an importer. We have to have some countries that are producing more than they use domestically, but countries that produce a lot of oil, like Saudi Arabia, are seeing rapidly increasing domestic demand for oil. So this could create problems along the way, ignoring even the fact that oil discoveries worldwide have been declining mm, since the early 1960s for quite some time now. So actual production of regular conventional crude oil has hit a plateau as of about 2005. Now, this is not for want of effort. Oil prices have been increasing rapidly and dramatically. Back in 1998, a barrel of oil sold for about $12. Today, it sells for about 10 times that. And even if you factor in inflation, that's a pretty rapid rate of increase in the world oil price. So the incentive is there for oil producers to bring as much to market as they can. And there's every evidence that they've been doing so. All oil producers are producing flat out, with the possible exception of the Saudis. But even in that case, I would argue that they're probably producing about as much as they can. And yet, we're flatlined. 
What's going on? Well, the oil industry has changed. You know, in the 1930s, it was mostly just a matter of sticking a hole in the ground. These days, it takes a bit more technology because we have to go to ultra-deep water oil or to tar sands or to tight oil reservoirs that have to be fracked and drilled with horizontal boreholes. So it costs more to explore for and produce oil. A, a single exploratory ultra-deep water uh, well like, like this one can cost a half a billion dollars to drill and still come up empty. So the oil industry needs high prices in order to produce that new incremental barrel. There's still oil being produced that could be produced at a profit, theoretically, at, if the price were $20 a barrel, but there's not enough of that around to meet global demand. So it's, the, it's that new incremental barrel that sets the price for all of the oil. And that new incremental barrel is expensive. Here's the situation with Australia. Uh, there were a couple of years when Australia was actually an oil exporter, but only a couple. Production's going down, and Australia is importing more oil every year. Well, get in line. Uh, because China is importing much more oil every year, and it's soaking up about all the oil exports that, that it can. And it's willing to pay. Uh, my country, the United States, is actually seeing its oil imports drop, not just because of slightly increased domestic production from unconventional sources, but also because American drivers can't afford $4 a gallon gasoline, which is what we're paying in, in California and complaining. This is, this is recent economic history in the United States. The, the vertical gray bars are recessions. The little squiggly line is oil prices. And you'll note that every time there's an oil price spike, there's a recession that, imme that immediately follows. Now, we have had recessions in the post World War II era that weren't linked to high oil prices, but we haven't had a single oil price spike that wasn't correlated with a recession. So we found from experience that high oil prices have an economic cost. So this is the situation we're in right now. The price the industry needs to develop new oil sources is roughly the same price that starts to undermine global economic activity. Now, this doesn't mean that the price of oil can never go down again. In fact, I think it's very possible that it will. It could go down substantially by several tens of dollars a barrel. But what will cause that to happen is weakness in the global economy and declining demand for oil. And when it happens, oil producers will stop going after that incremental barrel and oil production will go down. The scenario that's extremely unlikely is to have low oil prices and demand being satisfied and economic growth continuing to happen. That's not going to happen. Okay, so oil by itself is capable right now of undermining, undermining world economic growth. But it's not the only thing that's going on. We also have a global debt crisis. Now, what's that all about? 
Uh, let me tell you a story. It's, and the story starts in the early 20th century. With cheap oil, we found it was possible to manufacture goods in larger quantities than people would normally want to buy them. With powered assembly lines, we could make cars, for example, so rapidly that in theory, everyone, let's say in the United States, Australia, and Europe, everyone could have their own car. But a car was a luxury item. It, this is a, an ad for 1910 Studebaker. Okay, 1910 Studebaker cost $900. Doesn't sound like very much to pay for a new car. But in 1910, $900 was a lot of money. And people were accustomed to buying things with cash. And so this, this big ticket luxury item, you know, mostly just sat in the showrooms. So industrial societies found some remedies for this. One was advertising, talking people into wanting to buy more things than they otherwise would, would, uh, would buy. And there was a subsidiary strategy to that called planned obsolescence making things, including cars, that would reliably break down before they really needed to, just so you know, you'd go out and, and replace it. But advertising wasn't enough. People wanted the cars, but how could they afford to buy them? Well, the solution to that was consumer credit. Make it easier for people to go into debt to buy things that they couldn't otherwise afford. Consume now, pay later. Boost consumption therefore boost economic growth. And this was a very successful strategy for increasing economic activity throughout the 20th century. We'll come back to that in a moment. But there's one more strategy that we need to unpack, and that has to do with money. You know, at the beginning of the 20th century, money was backed by gold and silver. And there was only so much gold and silver around. The, the economy at this point, with mass production and all the rest, was capable of growing pretty rapidly, but the money supply was limited by the amount of gold and silver. Now, that could grow by you know, digging more out of the ground, but relatively slowly. So over the course of the 20th century, money was decoupled from precious metals. So what is money today? Well, money is debt. And debt is money, quite literally. If you go to the bank and take out a loan for $10,000, the banker doesn't scurry off to the vault and try to find $10,000 that somebody else deposited there. The money is created at the moment the loan is approved, out of nothing. And when the, when the loan is repaid, that money disappears again into the ether. It's quite magical. And it, and it has worked, having having uh, a fiat money system has enabled the money supply to expend as needed by the economy. Uh, <clears throat> now, starting in the 80s, we really began to take advantage of consumer credit and expanding uh, money supplies because the the, the, what was thought of by this time as the normal process of economic growth was actually starting to slow down for a couple of reasons. 
One was technological saturation. Now, there's a, a paper making its rounds among uh, economists these days by uh, uh, an economist named Robert Gordon at uh, Northwestern University. It was published by the, the uh, National Bureau of Economic Research in the United States. So it's, it's, it's a, a credible paper. And what Gordon does is he shows that there have been three periods of technological change uh, since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. The first was brought on by coal and steam power. The second by oil and electrification and all the technologies associated with those like the automobile and uh, airline industry and so on. And then the, the third phase started in the late 1970s and, and 80s uh, and has really developed since then related to computers, the internet, cell phones, other consumer electronics. And he, he shows with data that the, the lion's share of economic growth really came with that second period of technological change with automobiles and, and aircraft and, and electrification. That was, that was the, the real uh, growth boosting era and and what we've gotten from, from all the cell phones and computers and all more recently has been actually a much smaller boost. So he's, he actually argues, argues that just on the basis of technological change, we may be seeing the end of growth. But there's more going on than that because another thing that was happening in the 1980s, in addition to saturation of the economy with, you know, by, the, by this time everybody has their own car, so you know the automobile industry is is no longer growing at the same pace. Everybody has, you know, electrification and lights pretty much in the industrial world, so the the rapid growth isn't taking place there. But also, what's happening is globalization. This is due to some some technological changes like um, container ships computerized monitoring of inventories, satellite communications, and so on. What it means is that suddenly workers in already industrialized countries like the United States are now competing with workers on the other side of the planet. So this has the effect of causing wages to stagnate. Wages had been growing on an inflation-adjusted basis for three or four decades, and this was this was the result of economic growth, but it also fed economic growth. As people had more money in their pockets, they tended to spend that money on cars and houses and all those things. Well, now, in inflation-adjusted terms, American factory workers aren't making any more today than they were in 1973. So this is a problem. If people aren't making any more money, how are they going to spend still more money on cars and houses and all the rest, to cause the economy to continue growing. Well, this, this was a problem, and it was solved by the financial industry, which created even more ways for people to go even deeper in debt. Uh, famously, in the United States, we had this uh, period when anybody could get a home loan for a, a house they couldn't afford. But, you know, the, the same thing was, has been happening with car loans and student loans and, and on and on and on. So 
<clears throat> for us ordinary people, that, that debt that we take on, that's an obligation to repay. It's, it's a burden, right? But for the banker, that debt is an asset. So as debt has grown faster than the rest of the economy, and in fact, debt has grown at about three times the rate of GDP in most of the Western countries over the past three or four decades, as debt grows faster than manufacturing and farming and, and everything else, then that means that the assets of the financial industry are growing faster than the rest of the economy. This means that the, the financial industry is taking up more space in the economy. It, it, it's actually becoming more powerful politically as well. And so the banks, you know, contribute in my country to, to, the, uh, to the campaigns of politicians and then rewrite the laws. Once the politicians are, that they, they uh, favor are in office, they, they'll rewrite a piece of a, a, a law and hand it to the politician and it, it gets, gets enacted. Nobody even bothers to read it. That's it's, you know, why, why do that? So the, this, is, this is called financialization, and it's, being, it's run rampant over the, last, uh, over the last while. Here's U.S. total debt. As you can see, government debt, which is what everyone's excited about right now, wasn't growing any faster than household debt. And in fact, it wasn't growing as fast as household debt until we get to 2008. Suddenly, there's an inflection point. What's going on there? Well, of course, famously, the G you, you all say GFC. We don't have that term in my country, but the global financial crisis. Uh, we reached the limits to debt. You know, if, if you take on so much debt that you can no longer make the payments and the bank doesn't want to loan you any more money, then you've reached the limit, right? And that's pretty much what happened in 2008. House prices stopped going up in the U.S., and the whole house of cards started to fall in upon itself. And in order to keep that from happening, in order to keep the banks from going bankrupt, the Federal Reserve stepped in, the Treasury stepped in, stimulus packages, bank bailouts. Recently, the U.S. Federal Reserve was audited for the first time in its history as a result of uh, uh, an act of Congress. And it revealed that the Fed, since 2008, has pumped $16 trillion into the global economy in various ways. Now, $16 trillion happens to be considerably more than the annual GDP of the U.S. So this gives you some sense of the scale of the problem and the scale of the forces that have been brought to bear to try to, to solve it, and yet... U.S. economic growth remains anemic, unemployment remains high, and the, the global situation appears to be still very tenuous. Now, this is the situation in your country. It's, your economy didn't suffer as much during the GFC, but as you can see, the levels of debt are perilous, and there are other reasons to, to be concerned, which I'll bring up more in a moment. <laughs> now, this was a statement by uh, my beloved president uh, just a few years ago, 
quote, if we don't loosen up some money, this sucker could go down, unquote. Now, by this sucker, I believe he meant to say the United States economy and, <laughs> and uh, by extension, the economies of the, of the rest of the world. Uh, money was indeed loosened up, as, as we just saw, but, uh, but this sucker is not looking so good, even still. Um, as we know from reading the newspapers, uh, if, if it's not consumer debt, it's government debt. One way or the other, we've reached the limits to what debt can do in, to create GDP growth. And as the economy weakens, then that creates more and more social tensions around the world. Okay, maybe that's enough on debt right now. Let's look at the third factor that I think is bringing economic growth to a, a screeching halt, and that's climate. Now, this, this one isn't coming to bear immediately. Now, we've all, we're already seeing the impacts from peak oil and peak debt. They're bearing down on us right now. Climate change is sneaking in around the, the backside and could, I think, deliver the coup de grace well within this decade. Let's look at what's happening. No big surprises here. We're pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. We're, we're engaged in the biggest science experiment in the history of, of the world, uh, changing the chemistry of the atmosphere and the chemistry of the ocean. And lo and behold, the, the temperature is increasing. Uh, so far, it's increased about one degree Celsius. But with just the amount of CO2 we've already put into the atmosphere, we can look forward to another degree of warming. Even if we stop burning coal and the rest of the fossil fuels tomorrow, we'll probably make it to, to two degrees. But can we really live with two degrees? Uh, with one degree warming, we're already seeing uh, food crises in the United States where whole, uh, the whole, practically the whole corn crop is withering on the vine. With just one degree of warming, we're seeing the Arctic ice cap melting into nothingness. And, and it could be gone, we're now told, by the end of this decade and possibly even by 2015, 2016. Well, what's the significance of that? Okay, so the polar bears lose their home. Uh, well, uh, it actually has considerable significance. Not only are we altering the, the very appearance of our planet, but, but we're altering how our planet works as a machine. You know, as the, the reflective ice disappears, the dark water absorbs more heat. So the result is a self-reinforcing feedback loop. The dark water absorbs more heat, which causes the ice to melt even faster. And once the, the ice on open water has melted, then the ice on Greenland is going to start to melt, and that will raise ocean waters. This self-reinforcing feedback is then setting off another feedback. Uh, are we looking at three degrees? Are we looking at six degrees? Well, this other feedback I'm talking about is of even more potential consequence. That's the methane that's stored in the permafrost and in the methane hydrate crystals that are buried under the, under the ocean floor. 
you know, over the short term, over 10, 20 years, methane's about 100 times as powerful a greenhouse gas as CO2. So as methane is released, and, it, and we are seeing methane plumes emerging from the Arctic now, as the methane is released into the atmosphere, that warms the Arctic and even more methane thaws, which warms the Arctic even more. And there's enough methane stored there that we could be looking at 10 or 20 degrees of warming, potentially. Now, if we get to 20 degrees, it's game over. Uh, effectively, higher life on planet Earth is, is gone. But of course, we're not talking about that tonight. We're talking about economic growth. Long before we get to that point, long before we get to that point, economic growth would be, would be toast. And that, that may not be you know, mid-century. Uh, by the time we see the economic impacts of climate change that would be powerful enough to choke off economic growth, we may be just talking about really a few years from now. So here we are. We're on this freight train that's speeding down the tracks. And we're not really satisfied with how fast it's going, are we? We need it to go faster every year so that we have higher returns on investments for our pension funds, so that we have more tax revenues for government, so that we have more money in our pockets as consumers so we can buy bigger cars and bigger houses and more flat screen TVs. We, we don't just want a healthy economy, we want a growing economy. So we want this thing to speed up and speed up and it feels great, doesn't it? <laughs> Winds blowing through our hair, and, and the, just the sheer exhilaration of this acceleration is just, it's marvelous. <laughs> but, of course, we, we live on a finite planet. You know, this can't go on forever. It's axiomatic. Let me help you think this through for a second. Uh, let's use the, the metaphor of a, uh, a baby hamster. A baby hamster grows very rapidly in its first few weeks of life. It actually doubles its body weight for those first critical few weeks. What if we had a magic hamster that could continue doubling its body weight every week for one whole year, 52 doublings? How big a hamster would we have? <laughs> would it be a 50 kilo hamster or a 500 kilogram hamster? Well, the, the math has been done for us and it turns out it would be a nine billion ton hamster. <laughs> that's the magic of compound growth and that's what we're talking about when we talk about three or five percent or seven percent as, or as in China as in recently, 10% per year growth. We're talking about doubling times. Now with 10% growth, the, the math happens to be very easy. It's a seven year doubling time. So after seven years, China's economy is twice as big. After 14 years, it's four times as big. After 21 years, it's eight times as big. Is, is this starting to sound like the impossible hamster? <laughs> yeah, How, can China's economy double even one more time? I don't know, we'll find out this decade, right? So <clears throat> here we are. The, all of this has to do with 
with your country. And it's not my place as an American to tell you what you should do with your country, but it seems to me you all have a choice to make here. Right now, it would appear that you're banking your future on being the, the resource storehouse for some of your uh, neighbors uh, to the north. And there may be a problem with that. Uh, actually, that, that problem seems to be emerging in real time because you know, China exports to the United States and Europe. The US and European economies are stagnating, so China's manufacturing is actually slowing down. Each of the last 11 months, Chinese manufacturing has slowed down. So that means that China's demand for commodities from Australia is actually declining, which means that the price of commodities is declining. So what does that do for Australia's economy? It, it, it's problematic, isn't it? Unless something changes in this equation, it doesn't look all that good. Well, this is... The, what I, what I just described to you is no secret. If you open the, the newspaper on a daily basis, you can see this playing out. And of course, when, uh, when Martin Ferguson said this, he was, oh, you can't say that, and immediately called upon to fudge it and retract it. But it's fundamentally true. It's an, it's an inconvenient truth, but it's, it's what's happening. Meanwhile, here's Australia's population. And here's where Australia's population may be going, according to the National Bureau of Statistics. Could be doubling even by mid-century or uh, tripling by the end of, of the century. Well, we, we all love people and more people sounds like a good thing, but you know, if the economy is not growing, then having more people around means that there's less per capita. That's where social strife and stress starts to come in. And um, it might be a good idea to start thinking about things like, uh, you know, the, the baby bonus. Is that really a good idea? Again, hey, I'm an American. Don't listen to me. You make up your own minds. But, you know, rather than assuming that there's going to be more economic growth and banking your future on more economic growth, it might be a good idea to start thinking about this word, resilience. Why? Well, as the slide says, resilience means the ability to absorb, absorb shocks and keep going. And if what I've been telling you so far this evening is even remotely true, there are shocks in store. It's way too late to, you know, fiddle with the greenhouse gas emissions and, and a, a little economic reform over there and, and everything will be fine. We'll just keep sailing off in, into the future. It, if, you know, maybe two or three or four decades ago we could have done that and, and, and made a, an easy adjustment. But at this point, we have shocks in store, climate shocks, economic shocks. So how are we going to weather those shocks? Well, resilience means 
in some ways, just the opposite of what we've been aiming for over the past few decades. We've been aiming for economic efficiency, and that sounds like a good thing. Energy efficiency is almost always a good thing, but economic efficiency is a little different. Um, let me put it in American terms for you. If you can grow corn cheaper in Iowa than any place else, then you should grow all your corn in Iowa, and there's no point in growing anything in Iowa except corn, right? That's economic efficiency. But it doesn't make your food system very resilient because if the corn crop in Iowa fails as it's doing right now, then nobody has corn and Iowa has nothing. So if you want a resilient food system, you favor small-scale local production for local consumption, right? It may not be really economically efficient. It may not be as profitable to big agribusiness corporations, but it makes for a more resilient food system. That's how we have to start thinking. We have to trade some of that economic efficiency that we've enjoyed for other qualities. If we're going to get off growth gracefully, and I might even argue survivably, then it, there are some other things that we're going to need to do, like doing away with GDP, or at least complementing GDP with other kinds of indicators. Now, GDP, most economists now are coming over to the side that would say GDP is an in inadequate or even perverse indicator. You know, GDP goes up, does that mean that everybody's better off? No, actually, it doesn't. It just means more money is changing hands. But there are lots of ways for money to change hands. We could be building, you know, uh, bombers and, and uh, armaments and that just sit there and, and, uh, and then have to be replaced every few years. Is that really making us all that much better off? Uh, putting more people in prison, well, that's a way of spending money. Make, might make the GDP go up, but, it, it, you know, is that, is that the kind of society that we really want to end up with? So instead of GDP having a more complex set of indicators that, that actually measures quality of life, the health of our environment, things like that that really matter, that could be a very good and important thing to do. Uh, if our money system requires constant growth in order to stave off collapse, well, it might be a good thing for us to think about changing our monetary system or at least changing our financial system. Now, the way corporations are set up these days, in, in most cases, you know, selling shares of stock on the, on the stock exchange, that means that the first duty of corporate officers is to increase returns to shareholders. And yeah, we want to make good products, we want to be environmentally responsible and so on, but if that gets in the way of returns to shareholders, well, sorry. You know, that's not our first job. Our first job is making sure we grow the company. Well, we're getting to a point where we can't do that much anymore, but does that mean that all business has to come to a grinding halt? No. There are other ways of organizing economic activity. If you have a family-owned or worker-owned company, you can continue employing people and providing a, a good service or product to society without necessarily having to grow every year. It, that's how we did it before we had rec rapid economic growth. Remember, this is something recent. It's not something we have to invent from scratch. We're just getting back to normal. 
And finally, as I was mentioning earlier, we might want to think about population stabilization and population reduction over time. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting a one-child policy. What I'm suggesting is changing our thinking as societies, and, and certainly in the US as much as anywhere else. One added American means increased consumption at a much higher rate than you know, one added African, for example. So by that standard, the US is maybe the most overpopulated country in the world. Now, we've got to deal with the climate challenge and with our, our, our energy challenge as well. How are we going to do that? Well, we need, obviously, alternative sources of energy, but we're not going to be able to bring those on fast enough in order to really make all the difference that needs to be made. We're going to have to learn how to live with less energy. And that means in transportation, we'll be a less mobile society. I can say that with some confidence because uh, right now we run all of our jetliners on kerosene made out of oil, right? And we're not going to run jetliners on electricity. Maybe a little single passenger plane with solar panels on the wings. Yeah, that's possible, but not a plane that carries 100 or 200, 300 people. It wouldn't be able to get off the ground because the batteries would be too heavy. Uh, even assuming massive technological uh, innovation in, in, with batteries, still the same conclusion. So we're going to be less mobile as time goes on. How do we make that work? Well, we relocalize economic activity. We can do that. It's just a matter of changing the dials. Uh, making our buildings so they don't require energy input for heating and cooling. Once again, this is a problem that's already been solved. Maybe you've heard of the passive house movement in Germany. Germany can be kind of a cold country in the winter, and yet they're constructing buildings that require no outside source of energy for heating in the winter or for cooling in the summer. It can be done. We have to rethink agriculture. We've created a food system that requires seven calories of fossil fuel energy to produce and deliver every calorie of food energy. It's not going to work for much longer. Well, again, we know how to do that. There are models all over the place of organic and biodynamic and permaculture that don't use large amounts of pesticides and herbicides and fertilizers. We know how to relocalize agriculture, farmers markets springing up all over the United States, Australia, rest of the world. Yeah, we, knew we need the renewable energy sources, but they're going to give us a different way of life than what we've been accustomed to because they're intermittent. The sun's not always shining, the wind's not always blowing. So we're not going to be able to have the kind of fast-paced, growing cons consumer society that we've gotten used to once we transition entirely to renewable energy, which we will this century, whether we, whether we like it or not, whether we plan for it or not. By the end of this century, we'll be using renewable energy sources. It's just a question of how much energy and you know, what, what the economy is going to look, look like when we get there. Um, finally, 
it's really important that we reform economics as a discipline. It's a discipline that's grown up during this brief anomalous period of human history where we've had rapid economic growth. So economists, I believe, if I may say, have internalized some rather unrealistic assumptions about the world. One of which is that nature, the environment, is just a subset of, of the economy. It's a set of resources that we extract to turn into products which then become waste, which then goes away, wherever away is. Okay. Uh, I would suggest instead that the human economy is a subset of the ecosystem, always has been and always will be, and we have to start thinking of it that way. If the ecosystem fails, the economy fails. So what's our priority? Growth in population and consumption is inherently unsustainable. Now this word sustainable, unsustainable, what does it mean? Uh, we use it these days almost to mean, well, something that's eco-groovy or slightly less environmentally damaging than something you know, that's, that's unsustainable. But what it really means is you can't keep doing, if it's unsustainable, you can't keep doing that for long. Now, we can grow population and consumption for a while. As we've shown, we've done it for a, for a few decades. Remarkable, we filled up the earth with human beings, seven billion of us. Now, can we continue doubling human population every 35 years? No. Uh, <clears throat> same with consumption. Renewable energy sources have to be harvested at less than the rate of natural replenishment. Duh. So simple. A 10-year-old can understand the principle. And yet, what are we doing with global fisheries and global forests? And finally, non-renewable resources have to be recycled as completely as possible. And our rate of extracting non-renewable resources always has to decline if we're going to avoid just running out and, and exhausting the resource. Okay? Very simple, axiomatic principles that should be at the heart of every economics textbook and every introductory course. Now here's a question for you. Can we follow those simple rules and still make one of these? How are we making them now? With depleting non-renewable resources using virtually slave labor that involves lots of fossil fuel transport of resources and finished products. Now, I would like to see us figure out, be, be, you know, we've decided collectively that these are the coolest things in the history of humankind. <laughs> so if that's the case, maybe we should start thinking about how we can make these from renewable resources, you know, um, or recycled materials using well-paid local labor. Um, I don't think it's being done anywhere right now, but it sure would be a good experiment, wouldn't it? <clears throat> You know, if you're starving, a little bit of food can be a really good thing. But once you get to a certain point, that extra hamburger doesn't make you better off. It actually makes you worse off. And that's where we are as industrial societies right now. We've gotten to a point where Economic growth is actually making our environment worse, making our quality of life worse because we're working harder and we're less enjoying life less. And on top of that, it's impossible 
So we've got to start making other plans. And if we do this together, if we do it right, we could have more of some very good things. You know, we've had to trade away a, a lot in order to have rapid economic growth. We've had to trade away intergenerational solidarity. You know, parents and children can't even talk to one another anymore because the technologies change so fast and the styles, consumer styles change so fast because of what? The growing consumer marketplace. Well, if we were spending more of our time in the garden, growing our own food, taking care of the chooks and talking to our neighbors, would that be a miserable way of life? No, I, I, that's how I live, frankly. Uh, you know, we have three hens at home and 25 fruit and nut trees on our little suburban plot, and, and I, have, I have to tell you, life is better because of it. So we can, we can do this. It's going to take uh, effort, but we human beings tend to come to we tend to show our best side often in times of crisis. When it comes right down to it and we have to change, then, then we do. Now we've had plenty of time to think about this since at least since 1972 and the limits to growth. We've kind of run out the clock, okay? The, the opportunity for proactive change is, is dwindling away. But crisis is going to force us to change. Now, it, it really matters whether we're ready for that crisis and how we think about that crisis. I would urge us to look upon crisis now as opportunity and to pay really close attention to those pioneers who have developed non-fossil fuel agriculture and you know, uh, car share programs and all of the other economic alternatives that could get us through this crisis to the other side. That's what's really going to make all the difference. My organization, Post Carbon Institute, tries to you know, draw together that kind of inf information and, and point it out to people. We have a website called energybulletin.net, and if you haven't checked it out, I urge you to do so because it, it brings together daily uh, information about all the things I've been talking about tonight and, and more that are related to the, the end of growth and the economic transition.